0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Riverside, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Riverside, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Riverside. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, hello and welcome everyone. I am James Orr, and today we've got a very special class. It is the impact of rapidly rising interest rates on real estate investors. It's going to be a new format for us, trying a little shorter uh, episodes to see how that goes. So, hopefully, you like the new format. So, here's the backstory Um, I'm recording this in October of 2022, and what we're seeing right now is unprecedented rising interest rates. So um, I've got this really cool new infographic that Visual Capitalist put out, and I'm going to go over that. And I'm going to talk about how the rising interest rates impacts real estate investors. You know, I covered this idea before in the real estate investor shocks class way back in August. It was one of the reasons that that class exists. Had a client who was under contract to buy a new construction property. And while they were under contract to buy the new construction property, uh, interest rates rose considerably. Um, and it, it really changed how that property looked for them because they were unable to lock it in. Usually when you're buying new construction, it's harder to lock in interest rate unless you do some type of extended lock period or the builders has got some type of extended lock period or some uh, pre-established rate. But if you're trying to do it with a traditional mortgage broker, a lot of times it's uh, more expensive to lock more than 60 days in advance. So they were floating their rate thinking, oh, rates, you know, might go back down a little bit, but between while they're having the house built and when they're actually going to close. And just the opposite happened. Rates jumped up very significantly while they were under contract to buy the property, almost to the point where they did not want to buy. And so um, I did a whole class on that type of shock and a lot of other shocks. And that's uh, the real estate investor shocks. That was back in August. You can go find that on the podcast. So. We've seen interest rates going up at a rate that is unprecedented, and I'll show you some graphics about that here in a second. Um, And and one of the things that the question is, is does this impact real estate investors and how does it impact them? And so we're going to start a conversation about that. I think this is much more than a single episode topic. I think that we're going to talk about what happens to real estate investors as interest rates rise um, as part of a theme. Moving forward. And so there'll be a bunch of other kind of classes and modeling and I don't know, discussions on that topic, but this is kind of just us getting started. So, all right. So, the chart that I have from Visual Capitalist goes over what's called the federal funds rates. It's basically what the uh, banks use in order to loan money to each other overnight. So, it's not mortgage interest rates that we're showing specifically, although the federal funds rates is. Very closely related in many ways to what a mortgage interest rate would be. It's not the exact same number, but if the federal funds rates go up, then it tends to increase mortgage interest rates as well. And if the federal funds rates go down, then that tends to impact mortgage interest rates too. And so, what the Fed does, it actually um, sets these rates, which is what banks charge each other to loan money overnight, and therefore that impacts what the actual mortgage rates. So, there the Fed is actually impacting mortgage rates, but indirectly. So let's take a look at what the numbers are. So this is a zoomed in version of the visual capitalist uh, new image that we have here. So you can kind of see what's going on. But I'll go over and I'll tell you what's happening here. So this is 35 years of interest rate hikes. It kind of gives you a a view of what happened over the last 35 years as far as the change in the effective federal funds rate uh, put out by the Fed and how they changed. And so what they did is they picked the last, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. They picked the last six times that the Fed raised rates very aggressively. And they wanted to show you, it is over the last 35 years, and they wanted to show you how quickly they did it. So all the way back in 1988 to 89, rates went up 3.23 percentage points in about one year's time. So over the course of a year, they raised rates 3.23% percentage points. Um, and that worked out to be about 0.23 percentage points per month. So that was sort of the rate that the rates were going up. And for those of you that can see the screen, if you're watching the video version of this instead of just the audio, um, you can see that that's this one right here. And I'll, I'll kind of jump to the punchline and tell you that that is the fa- that is the second fastest time that rates have gone up. So 3.23 percentage points in about a year or about 0.23 percentage points per month. Then he jumped forward to 1994 to 1995, and rates went up 2.67 percentage points in about a year as well. And that worked out to be 0.22 percentage points per month. And that's this 1994-95 one, very close to that uh, other line there. And you can kind of see where it is. Just not quite as high. And then in 1999 to 2000, rates went up 1.51 percentage points over 11 months. So a pretty big increase, but over a slightly shorter period of time that's about 0.14 percentage points per month. And so that is the 1999 to 2001. That's this little blue line if you're looking at the video right there. And then the 2004 to 2006 period, rates rose about 3.96 percent percentage points over about two years. And so that was uh, 0.17 percentage points per month. And that one is right here, 2004, 2006. So that's, a, that's the largest increase we have on this particular chart but it was over a longer period of time so the steepness of it the rate of change of it is not quite as dramatic and so that's right here that one and then in 2015 to 2018 this is remember after the global financial crisis Rates went up slowly and over a long period of time, about 2.03 percentage points over three years. So it took them three years, 2015 to 2018, to kind of have these rates go up. And it went up about a little over two points during that time. So that was about 0.06 percentage points per month. Now, we're in 2022. And over the last six months, we've seen an increase in rates of 2.36 percentage points. So as far as like magnitude goes, It's definitely not the biggest increase we've ever seen. In fact, we've seen one, two, three. We've seen three other periods in the last 35 years of history where rates have gone up more than this. Okay, so it's not just a a order of magnitude problem that we're seeing that. But what we are seeing is the time period, the amount of time it took to increase that much is a new record. It's faster than any other time in history. And so we saw a 2.36 percentage point increase in 2022. Uh, over six months, which is 0. 0.4 percentage points per month. So what I did is I took the, the kind of uh, rate, how, how many percentage points it was going up per month, and I plotted them on a separate chart just so you could see the order of magnitude. So uh, 1988 to 89, it was 0. 0.23. 1994 to 95, it was 0. 0.22, just a little smaller than the 1998, one. Uh, 1999 to 2000, that was 0. 0.14. Uh, 2004 to 2006, that was sort of like before the financial crisis, that was 0.17. And then in 2015 to 2018, it was 0.06. And these numbers, again, are the percentage points change per month during these massive increases. So it had to be a massive increase. And then we figured out how long that increase took to happen from its kind of trough to peak. And then we look at how uh, what the rate of change is per month to find out like how severe it is. And then if you look at 2022, it's 0.4. So it's almost, not quite, but it's almost twice as much as the next two highest ones, 0.23 and 0.22. We're talking about 0.4. So what's what's been dramatic about this particular period of time is how quickly the rates have gone up. And it's not that the rates, you know, were, it's not that we're seeing the highest change in rates. That happened elsewhere. That was not our current time so far. And we, we may see an increase in rates from here. But it is the fastest we've seen this amount of change. And so we'll have to see kind of what happens. In that class, when I did the real estate investor shocks, I did talk about just having some historical perspective. I think there's a tendency, this is my hypothesis, right? You know, I, I, don't, I don't pretend to know everything, um, but it, it, this is my hypothesis about what I think is happening with people. I think a lot of people, have short memories about what has happened in the past. You know, we, we get used to this idea that mortgage interest rates are at, you know, 3%, 3.5%, you know, 2.5%, whatever it is that you were able to get in the last, you know, three or four or five years. You know, when we see, seen this is a chart showing historical interest rates, you know, it's like over here down in this really low section. So whatever you were able to get for that. And I think what happens is people think, you know, that's normal. I should be able to get a three percent mortgage, or a four percent mortgage, or you know maybe even a five percent mortgage. That seems like a reasonable number. But what I think some people, I I would even argue maybe most people, don't realize that historically, that's really low. Like 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 if you see these numbers here, like the the two three percent, that's exceptionally low. Going all the way back to when this is the uh, Federal Reserve. Freddie Mac source is uh, the website that was from uh, the Fred. I think it's the St. Louis um, Federal Reserve. But anyway, it shows the sources from Freddie Mac data. It goes all the way back to, oh, this looks like maybe 1970, 71, sometime around there. But 1971, it was 7.5%. And this is actually mortgage interest rates now, not the uh, federal funds rate. But back in uh, 1971 or so, interest rates were 7.5. Higher than they are today. And from there, from 1971 through probably whatever this is, mid 80s or so, um, interest rates actually went up largely uh, to the high of almost, I don't know, 18, 19 percent, whatever that number actually is. But it's definitely over 17.5. You know, it's probably over 18.5. So interest rates went up pretty significantly during that period. And then from there, they've been on a jagged, not not consistently down, but overall downward trend to when we were bottoming out sort of like during the pandemic where we had these really, really low interest rates. So it went from, you know, 18 and change probably all the way down to these lows over here, which is probably, you know, just over 2.5, you know, somewhere around there for the, for the very low. But now we're back up, you know, I'm recording this in early October, 2022, we're back up to, you know, probably pushing 7%, 7% or so as the interest rate. Lower than what we were in the early 70s, but definitely a lot lower than we were in the 80s. Uh, but, you know, we're we're kind of used to this shorter period of time. Our our memories are kind of like short term memories are kind of are, are triggering off of, you know, we have it so bad now because, you know, five years ago, interest rates were amazing. You know, there were these really low ones and now they're much higher. So we've seen the highest rates we had probably since. I don't know if I kind of use my mouse to go over here. I don't know, since probably the early 2000s, 2007, 2000, you know, probably in there. It's probably about where we were. And then before then, it was probably back to, you know, early 2000s, 2001 or so that we saw the rates where they are. So I guess what I'm trying to point out is real estate investors, I think people in general, but also real estate investors, they had these shorter perspectives on what what they're kind of like used to seeing. Uh, Maybe it's like a recency bias, if if I kind of understand those biases correctly, which I'm not an expert on. But the the idea is that we tend to think about things that have happened in the past and we think that that's normal. Well, maybe it's not normal. And so as part of the discussion moving forward with this, is I want to discuss the impact of these rising mortgage interest rates and then maybe some really early on ideas. We, we have a lot to cover and I'm not going to cover it all today, but a lot to cover on this idea of like what we should be doing and how we should think about and what it looks like when these different types of things happens, like rising interest rates or uh, property values going down or more or rents going down or maintenance on property getting out of hand or, you know, all, all of these sort of like unknown things, inflation. I mean, we've got all, we got a lot of these things happening at the same time right now. But overall, when you're thinking about making real estate investments and buying properties and rental properties and all those different things, these all have an impact. So let's talk today, just kind of narrow it back down, the impact of rising mortgage interest rates. So the impact of rising mortgage interest rates, especially after significant price increases, because we're kind of coming off of a really hot real estate market in general, where a lot of people were bidding above asking price and prices were going uh, significantly above asking price and you know property values were increasing very rapidly. So when we see these mortgage interest rates rising, and now we already had property prices that are up much higher than they were you know two, three, four, five years ago. And maybe we've seen rent decrease, but maybe not quite as much as we've seen these whole prices increase and definitely not as much to, to kind of counteract the ability for the prices going up and the interest rates going up, such as the payments on those, if we finance those properties to be able to support that particular property. So now when you have prices going up and rents going up, but maybe not quite enough to keep pace with the prices going up and maybe now these really high interest rates, it can make it much more challenging. To have positive cash flow on a property. And because of that, also to qualify to buy the next property and any additional future properties you're planning to buy. So if you were using something like the Nomad strategy, where you're buying a property, moving in, living there for a year, and then after the year, converting that to a rental and repeating the process. You know, it's one of the strategies that a lot of folks use in order to minimize how much they need for down payments, get, get better interest rates on their loans, and then they kind of buy a property, live there, and then they acquire as many properties as they want, repeating that process over and over again. But if you're trying to do something like that, then having these higher interest rates and higher prices and the rents not being quite as, growing quite as fast as those two are growing in, in tandem, uh, that actually impacts your ability to qualify for the next property, making it harder. You may have to wait. You may have to put more down. You may have to buy down the interest rate. You may have to do a combination of those things. Maybe you have to do some type of other, um, uh, increase their income on the rental property, like doing short-term rentals or something like that. That's just an example. So to be able to do all of that in order to you know buy these properties and um, qualify for the new loans, these these rising interest rates are really impacting that a lot. So the question then becomes, because I hear it's you know some of the rumblings going on, uh, you know, is real estate investing dead? You know, interest rates are now seven percent. It doesn't even make sense to go buy a property with twenty or twenty five percent down anymore. It's really hard to get into cash flow where they're really, really negative or whatever happens to be happening in your market. And I personally think the answer to that is not at all. I do not think that real estate investing is dead. So what does this mean for real estate investors? First of all, it's not the end of the world. It may seem like that. But I wanted to give you some perspective about these interest rates and how they've been really, really high in the past. And real estate investing was definitely not dead at that point. It is not dead right now. There are strategies that you can apply that don't rely on you or your customers getting new bank financing at all. Um, So, first of all, you you could do totally lender kind of uh, non contingent on the lender at all type strategies like going and getting owner financing. So now you're negotiating directly with the seller or wrap financing, taking existing loans. I mean, this is a great period if you're if you're willing and, and not everybody's willing to do this, right? Some people just want to go buy a rental property. They want to work their job. They want to buy the rental property, put a property manager in place and have that become a very passive stream. And they're not willing to go out there and negotiate directly with a seller to find a deal and do that. That's up to you. I mean, it's really up to you as to whether you want to do that strategy or not. But you can go find owner financing. You can do wrap financing where you have these existing loans over the last few years that have been really, really low. You buy those properties and you wrap the financing on that. Kind of like a subject to, but you give the seller the right to foreclose if you're uh, unable or unwilling to make the payments on it. Loan assumption. So there are some loans, especially if you're doing like a nomad strategy where you can go in and formally assume a loan that has a lower interest rate, may require a slightly larger down payment than what you might've been thinking. But that's definitely a strategy where now you can take over a really good interest rate loan on a property that is you know, 3%, 3.5%, 2%, um, you know, things like that. Uh, you can also do lease options where you are leasing a property and you have the option to purchase it. Or you do a lease purchase where you have a lease on a property and you have a purchase agreement, the contract to be able to buy it at some point in the future. So those don't require outside financing. Uh, agreement for deed, where you have an agreement with the seller that you're gonna make monthly payments and at the end, they're going to provide you the deeds to the property if you do all that. And then buying properties subject to the existing financing, where you leave the existing seller's loan in place, uh, the seller deeds you the property, so you are now the owner of the property, and you start making payments on an underlying loan, as an example. So those are strategies that do not rely on you or your customers specifically getting new bank financing. Now, a lot of these strategies do rely on your customers eventually getting loans and cashing you out. For example, You know, a very common lease type strategy is you do a lease option, you acquire a property, a lease option, or subject to, or wrap financing, and then you immediately offer it to a tenant buyer with a lease and an option to buy it from you. And in that case, you are eventually relying on your lease option tenant buyer going and getting a loan from a bank and cashing you out in the property, if that is your model to do that. But there are versions of this strategy where you agree with the seller upfront that you plan on lease optioning the property and that you do not intend to lease option exit it, you're going to hold on to it long term. And so you have to negotiate a much longer lease to do something like that. So those are some examples of things that you can do that don't rely on you getting financing right now. And who knows what the future right? I mean, I could try to make predictions and say, you know, I think interest rates are going to go up or they're going to go down or they're going to go back down to 3% or 2% or they're going to go up to 8% or 15%. You know, I, I could try to make predictions, but I don't know what's going to happen. I think a lot of really smart people don't know for sure what's going to happen. I think there are some people that were a little bit surprised to see the rates do what they did you know, last month or two. Um, and, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the short term. We don't know what's going to happen in the long term. I think overall, my, get, my best guess is that rates will go up and down. <laughs> no, not, to be, uh, not, not to kind of be dodgy here, but I think we'll, we'll see rates increase. We'll also see rates kind of come back down. And so you have cycles going through where rates are getting better, rates are getting worse. So um, I forgot where I was going with this, but the idea is those strategies exist, like all the ones I talked about, all the creative financing stuff, or you could do a totally different business model if you really are committed to doing some type of real estate, but you're flexible in your approach, like flipping properties as an example. Although a lot of times flipping properties involves you buying a property and then selling it to somebody, which relies on your customer actually getting a loan. Uh, you could wholesale properties. Again, in most cases, it's relying on somebody else getting a loan to do it, unless they're buying cash. A wholesaling, which is a wholesaling, but to a retail buyer, or it's straight up doing real estate brokerage. I mean, it's, it's kind of related enough. When you start thinking about wholesaling, wholesaling looks a lot like real estate brokerage, except you're only doing uh, you're, a real estate brokerage, you're only doing one side of the transaction. Instead of having to find the deal and the buyer, you can either find the deal or you could find the buyer and get paid a fee of real estate commission for doing that. They're mechanically different, but if you think about it philosophically, they're very, very similar. Uh, utilizing options or option auctions, where you're also finding and buyers doing that. We're investing in tax liens or tax deeds or doing partnerships on properties where your part, one of your partners is buying all cash or doing a syndication of some form. Um, so those are all the different options that don't necessarily rely on getting new bank financing. Those are options for you. So if you were relying on bank financing in your previous strategy, the new Market that we're in, the interest rates being where they are, prices being where they are, rents being where they are, the kind of the economy being where it is, it might suggest it doesn't require this, but it might suggest that you pivot to another strategy in the interim, or so you could pivot to any of those other ones, or another option is use this time to prepare. And I'll, I'll kind of show you what I mean by using a recent example. I just recorded a podcast episode earlier this week um, on uh, Norm and Norma for the Real Estate Financial Planner podcast, where that's more like stories of people. And we kind of talk about their situation and we, we model what their situation look like and how long it would take them to be financially independent and what their net worth looks like and how we measure risk and things like that. But there's a couple in there, Norm and Norma. And they were going through in, in previous episodes on how to buy rental properties in a variety of ways. And so one of the ways they were considering is putting 20% down and buying as many rental properties as they could until they had a maximum of 10 and then kind of seeing how long it takes them to be financially independent with that. We're putting 25% down and doing loans or 15% down doing a non-owner occupant investor loans and paying the PMI when they do that. We're doing the nomad strategy, which we discussed, but putting 5% down, moving into the property, living there for a year, at least a year, and then converting that to a rental after time. But this last episode is one of the more interesting ones related to this particular topic. In episode 24, if you go to realestatefinancialplanner.com uh, forward slash EP0024, and I'll put a link in the show notes for this as well. Uh, but if you go to that episode, they they discuss the idea of instead of buying rentals with 20% down or 25% down or 15% down or doing Nomad with 5% down, what if they actually just save their money, invested in the stock market, which opens up a whole other discussion about you know transferring risk of... You know, you're now got a slightly different risk curve characteristics by investing in the stock market, but they invest in the stock market until they have enough to buy the rental property free and clear. You know, they're going to pay all cash for the property. They're not going to get a loan at all. Well, what's interesting about getting a property, buying a property for all cash when you're in a really high interest rate scenario? It doesn't matter, right? Because the interest rate is not a factor. You're not getting a mortgage on the property at all. So it doesn't matter if they're 7% or 9% or 18%. You're going to buy all cash. And so the model for them is, they're going to take all the money that they were normally saving, that they were going to use to put 20% down or 25% down or 15% down. And instead of buying a rental property at that point, they just keep using that money, invest in the stock market until they get enough where they have 100% down, until they're buying a property free and clear. And yes, it takes much longer for them to get to the point where they're able to do that. But the interesting thing that happens is it doesn't take a lot more. It doesn't take a crazy amount of time in addition to do this free and clear model versus doing the traditional rental model. As an example, and this is a, a very specific example of their situation. You know their jobs, their income, the types of properties that they're buying, and you know I, I probably will do. I'm going to talk about this here in a little bit, but I probably will do a version of this for every city in the different podcast cities that we're kind of doing, where we use that city's numbers to show you how this impacts in whatever city you're in, right? Like the idea is that we'll be able to do it for your city. But for their specific situation, their own savings rates, their own, um, you know, kind of like income and their, their debt load, because we use debt to income to determine when they buy it. Although you don't do that when you're doing buying free and clear properties, but you do for the other loans. But all their specific situations in that particular case, it takes them when they're buying 20% down payment rentals, it takes them 31.17 years. So just over 31 years to be financially independent where the income from the rentals and any other money that they have invest in the stock market using a safe withdrawal rate, but a combination of cash flow after all expenses and the money that they have in the stock market that combined is enough to support them with their minimum income that they need for retirement. And we do adjust for inflation and do all the math, right? So you can go listen to the episode to get all the details, but the short version is it's about 31 years if they put 20% down, but if they save up and they do 100% 100% down, down, they buy the properties for all cash. They buy free and clear rental properties. It only takes one year more for them to be financially independent, which blows people's minds because instead of them you know, putting 20% down, buying a rental property, and then saving up you know, with the extra cash flow from that one and the, any extra savings that they got, they buy another 20% down, then they buy another 20% down until they get as many as 10. Uh, sometimes it doesn't even get to 10 before they're financially independent. But if they do that model, Versus they save up until they have 100% down to buy a rental property, then they buy that rental property. And these are identical properties. I didn't change the property type at all. It's the same ones that they were buying when they put 20% down as they were doing when they were buying the free and clear ones. But if they go and they do that and they put 100% down, it only takes them one year more. It's 32.17 years versus 31.17, which is crazy. So imagine for a minute, you're getting all stressed out. Because interest rates are up and you know, your investing model is, is harder to do. You're like, I don't know. I can't make these numbers work. I can't buy a property that's got positive cash flow. Do you think that saying, okay, you know, the market's kind of giving me a sign that maybe I should just pause for a second here, catch my breath, see what's going to happen here. If you've got properties, great. Those are awesome. They're performing well. You know, you've got great loans on them. You know, whatever your situation is, that's awesome because those kind of get to accumulate. But for now, I'm just going to hoard money. I'm just going to kind of save, put it in a pile, you know, maybe invest in CDs or savings accounts or stock market or whatever you think is appropriate for you and for saving that money. But you kind of let that money grow, knowing that either one of two things is going to happen. Either the interest rates are going to get much better and you're going to find a deal that makes sense or interest rates don't even have to be better. You just find a deal that makes sense for you to do. Someone offers you owner financing and the MLS or something easy that makes sense for you to invest in. Or. You get to the point where you have enough money, where you could buy it cash and the financing no longer matters. And if you think to yourself, I think a lot of folks would think, you know, I have to do this. I have to go put 20% down. I have to move really, really quickly because, you know, trying to save up for, you know, buying the first property with free and clear, it might take me 20 years to do that. Yes, it does. It takes forever for them to save up and do hundred percent down. But when they do, the cash flow from that free and clear property makes up a significant amount of the amount that they need to be financially independent, such that they don't need that many properties in order to hit that number to do that minimum amount they need. So I guess what I'm saying is it takes a year longer to do the one where you're doing 20% versus buying free and clear. If they had put 25% down instead of 20%, it takes 28.5 years. So a little bit faster, whatever that is, you know, four years, three and a half years faster. Uh, how my that's my math, 1.5 and, and 1.17. So what is that? 2.7, something like that. I, I don't know if I, it's hard to do math on the fly here. but basically it's, it's a few years faster for you to go put 25% down than it is for you to save up 20% down, which is counterintuitive for a lot of folks. They're like, Oh, I think it would be better to do them faster to buy them, buy them, buy them quicker. Nope. Not in this case. Um, so it's a little faster to do that. So that's, whatever that is, four years faster than saving up and doing free and clear properties, but it's four years on the scale of 30. So it's, you know, percentage-wise, it's maybe 10%-ish, you know, 15%, somewhere around there. You know, I, I started to do math on the fly, but that idea. If you put 15% down, it's actually slower. It takes you longer to get to financial independence. If you put 15% down and pay PMI, then, if you go and you save up your money and buy your properties all cash. Craziness. So that takes 33.42 years. And if you do the nomad strategy where you buy a property as an owner-occupant with 5% down, you move in, you live there for at least a year. That's a requirement of the lender in order for, for you not to be committing loan fraud. So you have to agree to do what the lender says. And the lender says for you to get an owner-occupant property, you need to occupy the property for at least a full year. So you buy the property for at least a full year. You live there. And then once you buy the next property, you convert that old one to a rental, you keep it, you'll convert it to a rental, and you buy the next one 5% down, you move in, you repeat this process until you have up to 10 properties in this case, but as many as you want in reality. And that takes 26.33 years. So a little more than 26 years to do that. So that's like, whatever that is, six years faster than doing the free and clear model where you pay 100% cash for your properties. I don't know. That's kind of interesting. So- is, is real estate investing dead? Not really. I mean, even if you decided to forego like loans at all and saved up and bought, you know, free and clear properties, I think it's completely reasonable for you to do that. Okay. So in a similar class to this discussion before, I, I've taught a class. Sorry, you had to grab a beverage there. So previously, this is probably about, it's probably about a year and a half ago now. I taught a class called Is Nomad Dead? It was, it was a class for nomads that had been buying properties every year or so. And they were they were wondering, hey, James, you know. The the real estate market's going crazy. The property prices, ha, ha, they're going up so, so much. You know, and interest rates were getting up a little bit higher, not like what they are today, but they had going up a little bit. So they're like, hey, you know, I can't quite get the deals I was getting, um, you know, but and prices are way up. And there's bidding wars on properties where, you know, they were having to waive things in order to get their offers accepted that you probably shouldn't be waiving in general, like, you know, appraisals and inspections and, you know, all those things that, you might want to keep in most of your offers if you can. I mean, they were in a market where they had to do that to be competitive, but in the ideal world, you'd want to keep those. So they had these bidding wars going on and the inventory was really, really small. So they had a very limited selection of properties available. So you had all these different factors going on. People were asking me, you know, the strategy that you've been teaching for a while and that you've written that book on, you know, like what has happened? Is, is, this, is this concept no longer valid? Is it dead? And I think this is, as part of a bigger picture, this is part of the challenge I have with real estate investing books in general. You'll, you'll go read a real estate investing book, and by the time it gets published in print, a lot of the ideas in there, they're dated. Or, or the person is writing about a strategy that they've been doing for the last 15 years in a market that you're not in, and you're wondering, will this work A, today in our current interest rate and price and rent ratio kind of environment? And Will it work in my market? And I think that's always been the frustrating thing, at least for me, I can only speak for myself. It's been frustrating for me to read a book and wonder, does this strategy work in my market with the current stuff I've got here? And so these people, even though I a lot of them were in my market and they read the book, they're reading a book that's five years old and I'm using numbers that, they don't seem like they're today's market because they weren't. They, you know, the, the prices price have got up so much, and interest rates were different, and you know, the, the market dynamics were different with the bidding wars and limited selection stuff. So they were wondering, hey, is this nomad thing dead? Is this something I can even do? And so this kind of like the short version of the two-hour class, which you can go watch the whole. this nomad dead class. It's it's a pretty in-depth dive into this particular topic. But well, in that class, we 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 basically determined this. This is kind of like the short short version. We analyze the deal that you can get right now. So uh, instead of you looking at what the book said five years ago, you analyze what the deal would be if you bought a Nomad property right now, and you look at what the expected return would be with really reasonable assumptions, like what you think might possibly happen in the future, not going crazy, not saying, oh, you know, the market's been going up 12% a year the last three years. I'm going to use 12% for my appreciation. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that's a reasonable number to use for doing any type of long-term modeling. Um, and so we talk about, you know, like what's reasonable in there, and and you go look at what your overall return might be buying that particular investment right there, and you should use something like you know the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet, which you can go download for free. Just go to realestatefinancialplanner dot com forward slash spreadsheet, and you could download a copy of that particular spreadsheet where you could do this analysis and you could see. The overall return you're getting from your expectations of appreciation, how much the property might go up in value, your 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 cash flow analysis, you know, how much will the property throw off in cash flow? And sometimes that's negative, depending on what, what market you're in. Uh, or the debt pay down return, you know, how much debt are you paying down on that property if you have a loan on it each, you know, year or period of time, whatever you're analyzing for. And uh, you know, the tax benefits of depreciation, you know, how much tax benefits are you receiving um, by owning that particular rental property and having that? So you have a combination of appreciation cash flow debt pay down and depreciation and then the final thing it takes into account is also how much you had to invest and including like your the the amount of reserves you need to set aside in order to be able to buy that property prudently so you don't want to go and say i just said my last dollar is going to go toward my down payment and closing costs and you don't have money set aside for reserves i think that's kind of foolish so we take that all that into account in that spreadsheet the world's greatest deal analysis real estate deal analysis spreadsheet and it shows you your overall expected return, including the drag from your reserves and all that other stuff. And it gives you an idea. And it'll give you a number. It'll say, you know, whatever it is, 25%. And then you go look at it and you say, okay. So I can expect, reasonably expect in the first year or so to do 25%. And overall, the, the overall return on equity, which is the way you should do it. There's probably a whole nother class that they teach on return on equity. But the overall return on equity tends to decrease over time. It tends to get lower and lower and lower. Over time, until eventually, it becomes the unleveraged appreciation rate and the cash flow or the cap rate on the property. So the the combination of an unleveraged appreciation rate and cap rate, you know, so you might be seeing, uh, depending on what market you're in or anything, maybe eight percent, you know, three percent for appreciation and five percent for cap rate. You know, it, each market is a little bit different, but that general idea. So over time, it goes from whatever the high was down to this cap rate plus unleveraged appreciation rate, which might be you know, 8%. I'm definitely do a detailed class on all that stuff. So if you're not following along, if you're following along, awesome. Good for you. If you're not following along, <laughs> just breathe, relax. We will get to all this stuff in other classes. Um, so this idea though, is you go look at the return you're getting on that thing and you say to yourself, okay, you know, I'm getting whatever number it is for you, 25%. And you say to yourself, can I invest in anything else? Can I go find another investment that is going to do better than this 25% or whatever your number is with similar acceptable risk characteristics. And specifically the risk characteristics have to be like, what is acceptable to you? I personally don't think that buying a rental property has the same risk characteristics as buying crypto, some type of cryptocurrency and speculating a cryptocurrency market. I think they are different risk characteristics. You may think it's, they're, they're the same and it's that's up to you. I mean, I, I'm not going to impose my will on you, but I think they're different. I also think that putting money in a savings account has very different risk characteristics than buying a rental property. I think that savings accounts are less risky than buying a operating rental property business, which is what you're doing. Um, but, you know, I do think buying a rental property and buying stock in a operating business are similar in some ways, right? In one way, you're buying stock ownership in a company that is operating. It's an operating business. When you buy a rental property, you're buying an operating business. I mean, the, the, you're buying the business that owns the property and rents it out to tenants and has like operating expenses and everything else. So those are similar enough for me, but it's up to you. So the idea though is you look at the return you can get by buying a property right now, doing your analysis in that spreadsheet, seeing the number that you can get, and say, okay, with this particular number, is this is this something that I can go invest somewhere else and get this return or better? Because I'm not trying to tell you you have to go buy rental properties. If you do your numbers and your numbers look really, really bad and you can go buy something else that you can make 5, 10, 15, 20, 25%, whatever it is, 100% return on your money somewhere else, then you have to go make that decision. And I'm not suggesting you have to go buy the 25% rental property or whatever the number is for you and, versus something else. I'm saying you look at it and you decide. You can't go compare it to what you could have made Five years ago, you can't go read the old Nomad book and say, "Oh, but James, when you were buying those properties then, you were getting eighty percent return of your money." Okay, I was getting eighty percent back then. Today, the numbers are whatever they are—thirty percent. Does that mean you shouldn't do it because you can't get eighty percent anymore? I don't think so. I look at that and I say, "Okay, I'm getting thirty percent if I do this. Can I do thirty? Can I get better than thirty percent somewhere else?" And you make that decision. That's sort of what applies today right? You go analyze the property, whether it's no matter or not, you do the same thing. You go analyze the property and you ask yourself, can I do better than this somewhere else? Can I put my money to work in another investment that has similar acceptable risk characteristics to me that I I can go invest in that, uh, something else? Yeah. So, or, or maybe you have to change your investment strategy in order to find one that does have better than that. So instead of doing Nomad, you do fix and flips or you do short-term rentals or whatever it is that makes sense for you. Um, and, and because the market has changed, sometimes you need to change your investing strategy or approach. For example, if you were buying deeply discounted distressed properties during the 2008 kind of like real estate crisis, that type of market doesn't exist today. It's it just that's not what the market that we're in. And it doesn't happen all the time. It's not like you can, if you go read the book in you know, 2010 about people that made a killing in the 2008 real estate market, and you're trying to look to implement that strategy, you're gonna be pretty frustrated. You know, it may come back, but it, it doesn't exist right now. And so maybe you need to change your strategy and you look at what's the best thing I could do with the resources and the opportunities I have right now. And I'll add one other thing. So in that class, I kind of went over this framework of do the analysis, look at your deal and decide can I beat this? Can I do better of investing in something else? And you decide to do that. Um, but now I'll say another option, which I don't think I mentioned in there. I haven't listened to that class in a while, but I'll add one additional thing and that is you can wait. And I think the, the confidence in waiting comes from that last slide where I showed you, it doesn't take that much longer if you decide to go to the free and clear model and forego all this financing altogether. There are some strategies that are much faster than that. But if you're thinking I'm going to do 20% down versus I'm going to do this free and clear model, I think even if you had to wait 20 years to build up enough down payment to buy a property free and clear, which I don't think it's going to be that long, but I think it's prudent for you to wait on the sideline. I don't think it's unreasonable for you to say, you know, I'm just going to hold my money. Maybe I want it in the stock market. Maybe I don't. Maybe I want it in crypto. Maybe I don't. Maybe I want it in, the, in savings. Maybe I don't. Maybe I want it in something else. Whatever you decide to hold your money in, but you can hold it and just accumulate money with savings. Keep whatever investments you have, if that makes sense for you, and you can decide to wait for that. So that's what I'll say about that for now. Okay. So I, I think I hinted at this earlier and it, it's kind of come up a couple of times for me, but my favorite part of real estate investing books and kind of like podcasts or whatever else, um, you know, audios about things, is, is kind of the analysis part. Um, you know, hearing about someone say, you know, I bought this property, then I bought this property, then I bought this property. And, you know, it took me X amount of time in order to accumulate enough where I was financially independent. And like that part of the book or that part of the story, or like hearing, you know, a, a property that I own, to kind of increase in value, and it finally went to this and my cash flow on it is this. Like those are the, the exciting, juicy parts for me personally. And I'm sure everyone else has got their own little thing. But, you know, once you get a certain Basic level of understanding of how real estate investing works. You know, you you understand mechanically how to do it. Maybe you bought a property or two or three, and and you kind of got the basics down. Yeah, you you pick up little tips here and there. But I think the part that I'm most excited about is the number side. I, I don't know, maybe I'm weird that way. But anyway, the the challenge I have with the numbers is number one, they were never for my market. I I can't recall reading a book where. When I was reading the book, it was for a market that I lived in. It just never worked out that way. Either the prices were, you know, really, really expensive stuff, or you know, they were buying really deeply distressed properties. Or you know, it's like all these different types of markets where it wasn't what I had there. Um, and as soon as they published it, it was out of date. And and a lot of times it was out of date before they published it because they're writing about a strategy that they've been implementing for fifteen years, and those fifteen years are very different than what our market is today. And so they were never for my market. They were almost instantly out of date. And so what I plan to do is I, just, I will plan to solve that problem for folks by doing city-specific podcasts. That's why there's all these different city-specific podcasts. The content is largely the same, except all the analysis that I do is city-specific. So no matter what city you're in, we will do analysis using your property prices, you know, your rents, your taxes, your insurance, like all those numbers that are specific to your city, we will use those to do our modeling. So if we say someone's going to do Nomad, we'll do Nomad for your city. If someone's going to put 20% down, we'll do 20% down for your city. And we'll try to change the assumptions to be whatever they are for you. And I'll share the link to you. I'll show you where I am and I'm moving in this direction. So I'm doing a lot more of it and it's going to get a lot better over time, but Right now, you can see what we have. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can go look at it and then just select your city from the list um, and you'll be able to do it. Or I'll have the direct link in, the, in the, the specific podcast. So I just upgraded the real estate financial planner server to be able to do more of this analysis. I had, a, had to get a much bigger server to handle all the different analysis we're doing. So we're going to have you know 100 plus different models for each city. And so, you know, you have 300 cities that, that starts getting really big with all the different data and you want to be able to compare them and all that stuff. So, I, and I'm got to, I got to work on the code to build all that. So it's going to take time. I've got like a, a, leisure, <laughs> a leisurely face, uh, you know, 20, 25 years or so, but it'll be a lot sooner than that for you to actually see some stuff. And there's a bunch of stuff done already. So it's not like uh, you have to wait for all of it, but I got a long timeline for getting all this stuff done. There's no rush for me right now. It's sort of like a, a semi-relaxing sort of quasi-retirement sort of thing. So anyway, so you'll see all that. And the good news is if you go to your particular city and you're looking at the numbers, you're like, James is, <laughs> James is off his numbers. I mean, I don't know where he's getting these numbers from, but I live in this city and his numbers are really, really wrong. So if you go look at the numbers for your city and you feel like they're not correct, which is my very polite way of saying James is all hoes. He's totally messed up on this, uh, which is, is absolutely possible since I am not an expert at every real estate market. So if you, if you go there and you find out your numbers are wrong, you have at least two options and I, and, and to get them corrected. So number one, if they're wrong for everybody, if like my price point is off or my rents are really far off or something like that, just tell me, drop me an email, and I can go update them and rerun all the models. So our software allows me to go in there and I can just change the assumptions for whatever it is and I'll rerun them all and they'll be correct for everybody. Now you can go and everyone can go and do that. If they're just wrong for what you can do, if you go there and you're like, oh, he's using average price or median price and I'm buying properties at this big discount or I'm buying in a certain niche where my stuff is you know, 30% off or whatever you're able to do, like you're special and you've got some magical power to be able to do something that not everybody can do. But it wouldn't be fair for me to change all those numbers just because you're, you're able to do something miraculous, something exceptional. Um, you can go ahead and copy the scenario into your own real estate financial planner account. Just change whatever it is that is different about you and what you can do and rerun it. And it'll be, you'll be able to do all the changes and see exactly how it impacts you. So those are like the two solutions for, You, uh, you discovering that I don't know everything about every market and, uh, and hopefully that'll help you. So that's what you could do there. All right. So I went a lot longer than I expected to go. I was thinking to myself, this is probably 15 minutes. It's 45 minutes in. So um, I hope you've enjoyed this new formats. I will try to keep them shorter in the future. Uh, I'm aiming for sort of that 15 to 20 minute podcast link. Uh, my contact information is on here. and I'll put it in the show notes as well. And you can kind of reach out to me if you've got questions or need anything else. But uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that is uh, helpful and and more encouraging for you then this uh, discouraging news and if running deal analysis and seeing you know frustrating numbers with your, uh, your mortgage interest rate. And uh, I'm not sure if the animals, uh, if you, you probably can't see the cat and the dog, but they've decided to visit and meow and the dog's not barking, he's taking a nap. But hopefully you guys did that. So anyway, I'm James Orr. I uh, hope you enjoyed. I'll uh, see you next time. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates cash flow on rental properties in riverside is harder than ever book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals see the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today if you're a real estate agent lender or professional in riverside that wants to help our real estate investor listeners